This is episode number 374 with Dr. Alan Desmond. The Show. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl and Open Wide. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe, as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? Alan Desmond has made evidence-based dietary advice an essential part of his practice as a doctor specializing in gut health problems. He has presented at numerous international conferences alongside other big plant-based advocate names such as Dr. Michael Greger, dietitian Brenda Davis, and Dr. Neil Bernard, who have all been on my show. He is an ambassador for Plant-Based Health Professionals UK, a not-for-profit group which educates members of the public health professionals and policymakers of the incredible health benefits of a plant-based diet. Certified in both gastroenterology and general internal medicine, he completed his specialist training in Ireland and Oxford a member of the Royal College of Physicians of Ireland and a fellow of the Royal College of Physicians London, he has published several influential research papers in the field of inflammatory bowel disease and is a dedicated advocate for the gut health benefits and overall health benefits of a whole food, plant-based approach to nutrition. This episode is awesome, guys. We chat about the dangers of the calories are just calories philosophy in the medical ecosystem, how food has become the world's major driver of disease, what the planetary health plate is and what makes it the blueprint to ultimate human nutrition, his 10 prescriptions to a healthier, happier and longer life. I love these prescriptions and they're really easy things that you can implement straight into your life. We also chat about how a varied plate and seasonal eating will unleash your microbiome superpowers, why junk food is the main contributor to overall health issues, why consuming whole foods is so crucial for your body's current health and prevention of all disease, how to finally beat your carb phobia and stop demonizing healthy carbohydrates, how sticking to a plant-based diet can level up your protein game, why ingesting B12 supplements is crucial for optimizing body function regardless of your diet choices, plus so much more. And for everything that Alan and I mentioned in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes. That's over at melissarambrosini.com forward slash 374. And now let's get this party started. Let's dive into this epic conversation with Dr. Alan Desmond. Alan, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you here. But before we dive in, can you tell us what you had for breakfast this morning? Of course. This morning I had something that I have a lot actually. I had a slice of Irish brown soda bread, which is like something from my childhood. And it's like a really good whole grain bread. So I bake that regularly. So I just had some a nice big thick slice of whole grain Irish brown soda bread with mashed banana and a couple of walnuts and a big pot of coffee. Ah, oh, I've never had soda bread. I don't even know what it is really. 
oh, it's so easy. I'll send you a recipe. It's one of the recipes in the book because it's like so important to me. It's like a staple back home in Ireland and a really nice whole grain bread. So I'll send you a recipe. It's super simple. You can knock a loaf up in like 20 minutes. Oh, wow. Wow. The recipes in your book, which is coming out very soon, they are so beautiful. My husband and I were drooling over them. They look delicious and sound delicious. So cannot wait to start making some of those. But can you tell us a little bit about your story, how you got here, how you got into this work and how you got into plant-based living? Yeah, of course. Thanks. That's a really good opening question. Thanks. So my name's Alan Desmond. I'm a consultant gastroenterologist. So it takes a long time to become a doctor, Melissa. I, I entered medical school in 1995. I qualified as a doctor in 2001. And when you first qualify as a doctor, you're working crazy hours at the hospital, you know, like 100 hour weeks, 36 hour shifts without a break, etc. But it was during that period of time, I guess for me, maybe 2002, 2003, that I developed an interest in becoming a gastroenterologist. So a doctor who specializes in helping people to recover from serious gut health problems. And even then, as like the youngest, most junior member of the team, I noticed very early on that whenever we talked to a patient who we'd just made a new diagnosis in, with a serious or even a minor GI disease or disorder, anything from diverticular disease to IBS, Crohn's disease, colitis, even colorectal cancer, precancerous polyps. Every single patient asks their gastroenterologist the same question. Is there anything I should eat? Is there any food I should eat? Is there any food I should avoid? And when we explain to our patients as gastroenterologists about the diagnosis and the colonoscopy or the MRI scan and the tablets and the pills and the surgery and the procedures and the follow-up, inevitably, every single patient asks, is there anything I should eat or not eat? And back then in the early 2000s, when I was training, I would hear my seniors, my boss, the people who were training me, had the standard answer. And the standard answer was, oh, it doesn't matter. Calories are calories. Yeah, right. It doesn't matter. Calories are calories. You need calories to recover from this illness. Eat what you what do you like? I remember even standing at the bedside of a young man with Crohn's disease, and his mom was there with him, and he was an inpatient. And that question was asked, and he was, you know, potentially unwell. He was on a lot of medication. He was getting to the point where he felt like eating again. So he asked that ever-present question, what should I eat? And my boss said, oh, eat whatever you want. You need calories. And turned to his mom and said, does he like McDonald's? You know, bring him in some McDonald's. No. That answer, a calorie is just a calorie, didn't make sense to our patients then. It doesn't make sense to our patients now. And throughout my career, it didn't make sense to me. And later on in my training, it take, you know, I qualified as a doctor in 2001. I finally became a consultant gastroenterologist in 2012. Takes a long time, a lot of training. As I became, you know, the senior guy in the team and have, you know, having my own patients, et cetera, I was determined that I wouldn't just say a calorie is just a calorie. And the more that you read these papers and the research about the effect that the food we have, uh, the food that we consume has on on our health, particularly our gut health, the, every single study I read 
was pointing more towards two really key factors. Number one, unprocessed food. And we can talk about junk food later, but unprocessed food. And number two, putting your focus on more plants and fewer animal products. And if you take that to its natural conclusion, that is a whole food plant-based diet. And as I read the research in the papers, in the same mainstream medical journals where I would go to learn about the latest medication or the latest endoscopic technique, etc., in the same mainstream medical journals is where I found those answers. So when my patients asked me, I could say to them, well, actually, yeah, there is a lot you can do with the food you're consuming. And there are a lot of healthy changes you can make. And there's a, when you ask me that question, it's a real opportunity. So to this day in my practice, when patients ask me that question, I talk to them about optimizing their outcomes by giving them the best available evidence-based dietary advice alongside the best available medical treatment. And we can aim for better. And over the years, I mean, this was something that became more and more a mainstay of my own practice. And then several years ago, I became involved with a UK-based not-for-profit called Plant-Based Professionals UK, built my network of supportive doctors, and really having seen the successes that I was achieving with my patients in clinic, I just felt, look, the UK in particular needs more people advocating for this out loud and educating members of the public and patients and health professionals and policymakers and anybody really who will listen about the benefits of a healthier approach to food. And once I started talking about it, I just, well, I haven't really stopped yet anyway, because I'm really keen just to spread the message as far and wide as possible. How did people respond, your patients, when you started saying, well, actually, there are some things that you can do and some shifts that you can make and some swaps that you can incorporate into your life. How did they initially respond? Because we have been conditioned to go to the doctor and them say things like a calorie is a calorie. I completely burnt myself out in 2010 and I ended up in hospital and the doctor said to me, you just need to eat some stodge, Melissa. Like, really stodgy, fatty food, you know, like fast food, go to McDonald's. That is exactly what he said to me. And I remember thinking, I am so unwell and I am so unhappy. I was on a whole host of medications. I was physically very sick. And then also I was dealing with depression and anxiety and panic attacks. And he's prescribing me stodge. That was his prescription. So I know a lot of people have probably heard something similar to what we have said. How did your patients respond when you said, well, yeah, there actually are some things that you can do? Were they shocked or were they excited? No, excited and grateful because when patients ask that question, they know, people know intuitively that the food we eat is really important for our health. And when it comes to people attending a gastroenterologist, that intuition is very highly attuned because they know that food has to have a role in helping them. And I think now in 2020, 
it's more entering the mainstream, isn't it? I mean, you know, you, you very kindly mentioned my book at the start of the interview. And, you know, I called it the plant-based diet revolution. But of course, the secret is the revolution's already started. You know, this book isn't going to start the revolution. I just want people to join the revolution because it is entering the mainstream. And, you know, for your listeners, will be very aware. They, they'll have heard from people like, you know, Lewis Hamilton or even recently David Beckham or Olympic medalist Dotsie Bausch. They'll have seen the game changers. They'll have heard you and Nick talking about the benefits you've experienced on a whole food plant-based diet. I know you even had the wonderful Rich, Rich Roll's been on your podcast twice, you know? So, so, so people are hearing more and more about this, about this in the mainstream. So, you know, a few years ago when I, I, I would avoid using the term plant-based in clinic, you know, and I just talk about plants. But now that's almost become a shorthand for a healthy approach to eating. So really nowadays, when I start talking to my patients about food, they are very open to the concept that eating more plants is going to be beneficial. Now, I, I know I'm still a full-time NHS consultant, so I'll have patients who sit with me and they'll ask me that question and they don't know that I, you know, I've written a book or that I'm a public advocate or remember plant-based health professionals UK and all that. They just ask the question uh, with no expectation. But we live in a country, I live in a country here in the UK and very similar to Australia and very similar to the United States and any high-income country where food has become the opposite of healthy. In the, in the, 20, in the 20th century, food changed. So the standard Western diet emerged, a diet which is high in meat, high in dairy, high in processed food, high in junk food, low in fruits, low in vegetables, low in whole grains, low in legumes, low in nuts, low in seeds, low in fiber, low in plants. And food has become a major driver of disease. I mean, there's a, a, a quote that, you know, food used to be an essential sustenance. David Katz said this a couple of years ago. Food has transformed from being an essential sustenance into the main driver of disease and disability. And that's a dramatic statement, but it's true. In the United States, food choices cause more disease and disability than anything else. In the United Kingdom, food dietary factors, food choices and food availability cause more disease and more healthy years lost than alcohol use and drug use combined. So that's dramatic. That is dramatic stuff. So when you think about that, when you go to see your doctor, of course they should talk to you about food. It's, you know, it, it, in the UK, a doctor will often ask you if you smoke, that's really important. They'll often ask you if you drink alcohol, that's important. They'll maybe nudge you towards exercise. But of course, if they're talking to you about alcohol and drug use, they better be talking to you about food too, Melissa, because in the UK, dietary factors cause more disease and disability than alcohol and drug use combined. So people know when you start to explain this to them, it's very obvious that we all need to start pushing back against the standard Western diet. Because the standard Western diet, I mean, here in the UK, 56% of all calories consumed come from ultra-processed junk food. One in five people get 80% of their calories from highly processed junk foods, which are basically made from animal products, refined 
carbohydrates, so simple sugars, and added oils. And then add into those artificial chemicals, which are produced in factories, like carboxymethylcellulose and carrageenan and polysorbate 80 and maltodextrin. The things that make up most of the calories that we consume are the foods that are making us unwell. And it doesn't have to be like this. We don't have to live in a world where one in 10 people, one in 10 adults have type 2 diabetes, a condition that requires medication, maybe insulin, and takes nine years off your life expectancy. We don't need to live in a world where two out of three adults are living with obesity or overweight. And we don't, you know, we we view now in high-income countries, we assume because we're surrounded by them, that heart disease, strokes, bowel cancer, inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease and colitis, we assume that these conditions are inevitable, that they're part of the human condition, but they're not. It doesn't have to be like this. And, you know, there's, there's so much diet confusion out there in the news headlines. Is it high fat, low carb, paleo, vegan, Mediterranean, moderation? Is a calorie just a calorie? But the the fact is, there is an answer to that question. There is an answer to the question, what should I eat? Because that's what patients are asking. You know, when patients ask that question, they're asked this, this question, what should I eat? And a couple of years ago, I mean, I've been reading this research for years now, but have you heard of the Eat Lancet report, Melissa? Have you or Nick seen that? It was published in February of 2019? No. No, I haven't. Okay, so what should I eat? We've already talked about how diet is such a major driver of disease and disability, okay? So what should I eat? In 2019, The Lancet Medical Journal, one of the world's oldest and most respected medical journals, published a report. So they'd set up an independent commission of 38 global experts on food, health, food production, and the environment. And they'd asked them to answer this crucial question for the 21st century. What should I eat? And they asked them to produce, it's a big ask, to produce a blueprint for human nutrition. A blueprint that could be applied not just to the three and a half billion people in the world who are living with overnutrition and the form of malnutrition where they're getting too many calories, too much food, too much, too much of the harmful foods, but also a blueprint that would be useful for the 700 million people in the world who are suffering from food poverty and can't access enough food. So what would a blueprint look like? And they looked at 30 to 40 years of data on food and human health. And they came up with what was called the Eat Lancet Report, or the Eat Lancet Recommendation, or was also covered in the media as the Planetary Health Plate. And, you know, it's a really in-depth scientific publication, but they summarized a healthy plate by saying that half of your food should be fruits and vegetables, and the remainder should be made up of whole grains, plant protein, and unsaturated plant oils. They then went on to say that meat, eggs, and dairy are optional. Optional. Not necessary for a healthy diet, but optional for a healthy diet. Optional for a human diet. And if you do consume them, you better not consume too much because they very quickly become unhealthy. So they talked about the healthy plate as I described it, and options including one ounce of chicken or fish, 
half an egg or seven grams of red meat each day. But they were very clear that if we want the world to be healthy, we need people to optimize and prioritize their diet by eating a whole food plant-based approach. And they estimated that if we could do this globally, if we could click our fingers and get everybody to take this approach to food, that we would prevent almost 12 million unnecessary deaths per year. 12 million deaths. That's a big number. And that's not even, that's not even mentioning the number of hospital visits or hospitalizations, the number of episodes of angina, the number of prescriptions for medications for all of these conditions that would be prevented. In fact, we, we estimate that dietary factors cause about a quarter of a billion years of healthy life lost per year globally. So that same question that my patients asked me on the ward, what should I eat, is actually the answer, just really, really powerful. Wow. There is absolutely no denying that we can all benefit from more plants. There's absolutely no denying that. And the planet can benefit from us eating more plants and our health and everything. I have seen such huge differences in my own health and my own happiness and same with my husband from eating a plant-based diet and living a plant-based lifestyle from things like eczema clearing up, hives, cold sores, my sleep improving, more energy. I used to have these bumps on the backs of my arms that have completely gone, my cycle regulating, like 28 days on the dot. There was There's so many benefits that I personally have experienced from eating more organic, real food that is grown in nature. And I want to share, I loved this in your book, your 10 steps to health and epic gut health. And I want to go through them because I think they're really, really important and powerful things. So can we kind of take it from the top and go through your 10 steps? So in the book, we have a section called Doctor's Orders, 10 Prescriptions for Better Health. Yes. Yes. Let's go through those. They're awesome. I love them. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. So in the, so the book, as I said earlier, at its heart, it's a healthy plant-based cookbook with 80 amazing recipes. But we have a number of chapters leading in about the gut microbiome and the importance of gut microbial health, heart health, physical health. We talk about mental health. So we've got happy heart, happy gut, happy body, and happy mind or healthy mind. But we also have our 10 prescriptions for better health. So let's go through them. So these are the prescriptions I wish I could just give everybody. And that's why they're in the book. So prescription number one is eat a diversity of plants. So the key to a healthy plant-based diet is variety. And when we start to eat meals that are you know, made up of fruits and vegetables and whole grains and nuts and seeds, et cetera, we are suddenly significantly increasing the diversity of plants in our diet. Now, typically in, in, the, in high-income countries, we don't eat a lot of plants. In fact, Plants, fruits and vegetables in particular, only account for about 9% of the calories consumed. And many of those calories are coming in highly processed foods. So there's a lot we can do. And why is increasing the diversity important? Well, we want to diversify our gut microbiome. And the number one determinant of a healthy and diverse gut microbiome is the diversity of plants in our diet. And number two, because plants don't just contain calories, 
They also contain the fiber that our gut microbiome loves that helps to control our blood sugars, regulate our appetite, maintain the health of our all-important intestinal barrier. And also different fruits and vegetables contain various mixes of these antioxidants and phytonutrients and vitamins and minerals and vitamins A and C and E and magnesium and potassium and just all of these things that are the reason why a plant-based diet is recommended as healthy by so many professional organizations. So by maximizing the different numbers of plants in your diet, you are making sure that you are getting the maximum benefits from your plant-based diet. And it actually gets really easy. We saw a paper a few years ago the, um, published by the American Gut Project, where they analyzed the gut microbiome of 11,000 volunteers in high-income countries around the world. And they found that if you consume more than 30 different plants in a week, you unleash like gut microbiome superpowers. You develop these new bacteria that uh, ferment fiber and produce short-chain fatty acids and produce other benefits. But fewer than one in 250 people who took part in that academic effort were actually reaching that number 30. So that just reflects the standard Western diet. So if you eat a whole food plant-based diet, you'll easily hit between 50 or 60 different plants per week. So in the, you see in the book, we have these meal plans, the 28-day revolution. And if you eat those meal plans, you'll be eating like 50 to 60 plants per week. You'll be achieving a gut microbial diversity rarely seen in the Western world or the high income or in high income countries. So that's tip number one. Yeah, I wanted to add something. It's very easy for people to kind of be on autopilot and walking down the supermarket and you picking up the same things that you always pick up. So carrots, broccoli, peas, beans, whatever. And it's very easy to kind of get on that autopilot. But I want to encourage people to get out of the supermarket first and go to the farmer's market. So every Sunday I go to my organic farmer's market and my husband and I try to not buy the same fruits and vegetables every time. There are obviously some things that we absolutely love and we get the same each week, but we try and mix it up. So if we grab eggplant one week, we're like, okay, well, we had that. Let's grab something different next week. And we're constantly trying to get different things, different leafy greens, different root vegetables, just so we're constantly mixing it up. So make that a little game for yourself to pick up something, at least one new thing every single week that you've never tried, that you're like, what is this? I haven't even seen this. And if you go to the farmer's markets, you'll be able to do that. That's a great tip. And if it's available to you, eating seasonally is a great way to vary your diet over the course of a year. So the human gut microbiome appears to be remarkably stable when you look at high-income countries where people just eat standard Western diet. But if you compare that to the microbiome of our close relatives, um, Western lowland gorillas in Central Africa, so they eat a completely plant-based diet, a huge variety of plants. They're super fermenters, but their diet varies with the seasons. They spend their whole day just eating plants and their gut microbiome changes with the seasons to adapt to the different plants that they're consuming. So I'm not suggesting we all need to eat like gorillas, but certainly we can all benefit from increasing the diversity and shaking it up a little bit week to week. That, that's a really good point. The second prescription, which we already hinted at, is ditch the junk. Just ditch the junk, or at the very least, keep it to a minimum. So the food industry calls junk food ultra 
processed food. So these mass-produced cakes and pastries and chips and crisps and chocolates, which are not food, chicken nuggets and meatballs are not food. Your great-grandparents would not recognize these as food. And as I mentioned earlier, in the UK, about 56% of calories come from these foods. Only one-third of calories consumed in the UK come from foods in their natural or unprocessed state. It's lower in countries like the US. Now, if you're depending on these highly processed foods for your calories, number one, you're missing out on the benefits of whole foods that we discussed earlier. You're also increasing your intake of added sugars, unhealthy fats, added sodium, which are all bad news for your health, and your cardiovascular health, and your blood pressure. And then you add into that the artificial sweeteners and the emulsifiers and the preservatives that it should like have no business whatsoever in the human intestinal tract and have no business whatsoever interacting with your human gut microbiome. So junk food is just junk. It isn't food. And in the book, we go into it in more detail about some of the effects that these junk food chemicals have on the gut microbiome and how you're doing yourself no favor by, I, I, you know, I could spin that positively. You're doing yourself a big favor by taking those things out of your diet or at the very least keeping them as a treat. The third prescription, this one's really important. So eat whole grains every day. Whole grains. So whole grain, just like oats and whole grain bread, like the bread I described earlier that I had for breakfast, quinoa, brown rice, frika, buckwheat, whatever, whatever whole grain you fancy. Just eat them every day and try to eat three servings. You know, a few years ago, there was a big scientific review of the impact of consuming whole grains. And the conclusion of that scientific review basically said that whole grain intake reduces your risk of heart disease, infectious diseases, respiratory diseases, total cancer risk, diabetes risk. And basically, if you follow any large population for a long period of time, the people who eat more whole grains are far more likely to still be alive at the end of your study because they are so beneficial to human, human health. So whichever whole grains you like, barley, brown rice, millet, whatever, even in the book, I, pop, I, I point out that popcorn is a whole grain. So look, if it's popcorn, I'm happy. <laughs> and breakfast is a great time to start with the whole grains. I had whole grains for breakfast today. Things like porridge. In the book, we've got like three different porridges. Great time to get the whole grains in. So that was number three. Shall I go on to number four? Yes, absolutely. Okay, cool. This is fun, actually. <laughs> so prescription number four is embrace whole carbs. Embrace whole carbohydrates. And in many ways, that goes hand in hand with the whole grain argument that I just made with prescription three. Because people have this concept that carbohydrates are dangerous to their health. Now, there is some truth to the fact that if you eat highly processed, refined sugars, you're getting empty calories without the fiber and phytonutrients that those carbs were originally associated with in the plant. But, so definitely you want to limit those things and keep those to fewer than 5 to 10% of your calorie intake. So things like artificial sweeteners, maple syrup, honey, etc., should be kept to a low level of consumption. Again, just a treat. But when it comes to whole carbs like fruits and vegetables and legumes and beans and even you know the whole grains that we spoke about earlier, please do not be afraid of those. One of the commonest mistakes I see in people who've 
made the switch to a whole food plant-based diet is they try to they try to combine whole food plant-based with low carb. And that is just really difficult to do. Things like oats, rice, whole grains, strawberries, apples, potatoes, etc., are greatly beneficial to human health. They fill up your tummy, they make you feel full, they feed your gut microbiome, they help you to maintain a healthy body weight, they help to reduce your risk of cardiovascular disease, they help you to control your blood sugars, they help you to avoid developing type 2 diabetes. So please eat, embrace whole carbohydrates, try to break through the carb phobia and embrace them. I definitely in the past had carb fear, definitely. And I didn't eat hardly any. I was so afraid of sweet potato and pumpkin and anything, even bananas. You know, I was so afraid of them because I had been conditioned to believe that if even if I looked at those things, I would put on weight. And that is definitely not the case. And at that time in my life where I didn't have carbs in my diet, I had the worst anxiety of my life and I wasn't sleeping. I was not sleeping because those whole carbs are what cuts through cortisol and allows you to, you know, get that good night's sleep. So I love carbs. I embrace the healthy carbs. I have carbs at every meal. I Things that I love are like sweet potato and pumpkin and parsnip and oats and lots of fruit. I used to have a fruit fear as well. And I was very afraid of them until I learned and remembered the truth, you know, that all of this beautiful stuff that is grown in nature is here for us. It's here for us. Mother Nature wouldn't have provided it for us if it wasn't there for us to eat. That is so true. And when we look at the healthiest populations in the world, you know, the Blue Zones population studied by Dan Butner 20 years ago, for example, in Okinawa, he found people eating this traditional, basic, whole food, plant-based, peasant-style Okinawan diet. These people happen to be the longest-lived, most healthy, healthiest population in the world. So the most longest-lived and healthy people among a long-lived and healthy population in general. And they were getting 70% of the calories from, from carbohydrates, from whole carbohydrates. So these foods have been demonized so badly these foods prevent illness. They prevent type 2 diabetes. So this, and you know, when we look at the studies, we see that when we put individuals on a whole food plant-based uh, meal plan with a goal of achieving a healthy body weight, the more whole carbohydrates they consume, the better they do. Because these are the foods that promote satiety and uh, promote beneficial changes in the gut microbiome that help to control our appetite and control our blood sugars and even may even slightly increase our basal metabolic rate, which means that we're burning extra calories just by sitting around and growing our hair, you know? So yes, yeah, whole carbs, please move past the carb phobia. Yes. I also wanted to mention that when I added back these healthy carbs into my diet, that's when my weight actually stabilized and stopped fluctuating up and down like a yo-yo. And it was really interesting for me to witness that firsthand because I had so much fear around it. And then I thought, oh my goodness, like this is the first time I haven't gone up and down on the scales and my weight has just, you know, stabilized. Well, that's, you know, metabolically, that makes a whole lot of sense. So the next prescription, which is so important, is choose your protein wisely. 
So one of the most enduring myths about a plant-based diet is that it is deficient in protein and it leads to protein deficiency. So I'm sure everybody asks you, where do you get your protein from? And it's a question that I get asked all the time. And But I welcome it because it's so important because where you choose to get your protein from is an extremely important determinant of your health and longevity. So by choosing to get your protein from plants, you're going to increase your chances of a longer and healthier life. And guess what? All plants contain protein. So you'll have noticed in the book that every single recipe, we didn't give full nutritional information, although you can go online and get that if you want to, but every single recipe includes the number of plants on your plate, which is about increasing your diversity of plants. It also includes the fiber content per, per meal, which is super important because that's the real deficiency that we need to worry about, the number one dietary deficiency in the Western world. But every recipe also says exactly how many grams of protein you're getting per serving. And the only reason I've put that in there is because people will not believe how much protein they're getting by eating a plant-based diet. So we have like a summer veg and white bean pasta dish. So, you know, someone might look at it and go, hey, where's the protein? There's 35 grams of protein per serving. We've got like a rusty pie with braised cabbage and peas. Again, someone's going to look at that and say, well, where's the protein? What, where's the protein on that plate? Where's the chicken breast? Where's the red meat? But that dish has 24 grams of protein per portion. So even, even the bread I mentioned earlier, the whole grain bread that I had for my breakfast this morning, that's got about 25 grams of protein per slice. So amino acids, which are the building blocks that make up protein, are made by plants. They're in plants. And when you eat them, they enter your body and your body uses them to build muscle and connective tissue and hormones and everything else that you need. You know, a few years ago, there was a nice study in Canada where they looked at protein intake among a group of vegetarians, omnivores, and vegans. And these were Seventh-day Adventists. So the Seventh-day Adventists being kind of religious affiliation, so they believe in healthy eating, they take a healthier approach to food, they tend not to drink alcohol, not to smoke, they put a great emphasis on faith and community and outdoorsiness and exercise. And for religious reasons, they're predominantly vegetarian, although about half of them do eat meat, but they eat far less meat than the average US citizen does. So you would expect this population where about one in eight people don't eat any animal products at all. You'd think, okay, they're going to be protein deficient, right? Because plants don't contain protein. But they weren't plant, they weren't uh, deficient in any way in protein. In fact, the average adult was eating about 70 grams of protein per day. And the top 5% were eating over 100 grams of protein per day. You know, I heard you when you were speaking to Rich Roll recently, talking about your brother who's a rugby player, right? Like a, a rugby pro. So I'll say, I'm going to send you a copy of my book and you can give it to him, okay? And, you know, he asked him, how much protein do you need per day? Because the meal plans in the book contain about 1,800 calories per day. And that's there. So about 1,800 calories per day. And there's about 75 grams of protein in there. Now, he's a big guy. He's an athlete. He's going to need more food than that. So if he doubles up on the meal plan, he's going to be eating you know, three and a half thousand calories per day. 
which he'll probably need if he's training all day and he's a big guy, he's going to be eating up about 150 grams of healthy plant-based protein per day, which is a huge amount of protein. I mean, how much does he need? How much does anybody need? Well, the, the great answer is that choosing to get your protein for plants is like a super healthy thing to do. It's going to add healthy years to your life. And it's really, really easy to get your protein from plants. Absolutely. Something that Nick and I did when we first went plant-based is we got the Chronometer app. Oh yeah, sure. And we measured. And I highly, highly recommend people do this because when you enter the data and you can physically see, okay, I'm getting this much protein, this many carbs, this much fat. You then have the proof that you're getting enough. And so if anyone does question you and say, well, you're not getting enough protein or where are you getting your protein? You can just go, here you go and show them your app and show them the proof is in the pudding. And so for us, that was really helpful for us to set the foundation of a very healthy plant-based balanced diet where we're getting good carbs, we're getting lots of fiber, we're getting the right amount of protein, the right amount of healthy fats. And that's really important. So we've got this balanced meal that has all of those things. So I highly recommend getting that app and doing it for one or two weeks so that you know that you're getting enough of everything. And it's more peace of mind, you know? So do this for yourself so that you have the data. If you follow those basic principles, of half your food is fruits and vegetables, about a quarter is whole grains, and then you've got your beans, nuts, seeds, legumes, etc. You really struggle to be deficient in protein if you're eating like that. It, it's pretty much impossible. If you're eating enough calories, you'll be getting enough protein. So the next prescription, prescription number six, um, for anyone eating a plant-based diet is to supplement with vitamin B12. Vitamin B12 is essential for human health. It's essential for normal red blood formation, for neurological function. It's even needed to make the DNA that is in every single cell, in our, well, almost every single cell in our body. Without enough vitamin B12, you're at risk of developing anemia, fatigue, poor neurological function, tingling and numbness in your fingers. It's just, we need vitamin B12. But doesn't even people that eat animal products need it as well. Like I've had so many people on the show say that even people who eat animal products are often very low in B12 because of the depletion of the soil. So this isn't just for plant-based people. This is for everyone. You're absolutely right because vitamin B12 doesn't come from animals. It comes from the soil. So we've got certain soil bacteria that produce vitamin B12, okay? And it's essential for human health. Early humans like we're going way back, early humans were just covered in dirt, Melissa. Everything was filthy, okay? There was dirt on our food, there was dirt in our hands, there was dirt in our water, there was bacteria in our water. People were never clean. There's even, there was vitamin B12 in everything because there was dirt in everything. And whatever you were eating, you were consuming vitamin B12. And we only need about 2.4 2 micrograms per day. We just need a tiny amount of vitamin B12 to be healthy. But now in the 21st century, our water is clean, which is a good thing. We don't get dysentery. Our food, our vegetables are washed, which is a good thing. But that means that we no longer automatically get a source of vitamin B12 in the 21st century. So where do we get it from? Well, animals in modern agriculture have the same problem because they're generally not in their natural environment. 
So if they're raised outside their natural environment, which is the most likely thing, as 90% of animals are raised for, for consumption, they'll be given a B12 supplement. So you can eat them to get their B12 supplement, or you can take your own B12 supplement. So please supplement with vitamin B12 if you're eating a plant-based diet. And you're absolutely right. As you said earlier, vitamin B12 deficiency isn't just a vegan issue. As we age, our ability to absorb vitamin B12 decreases. So many experts recommend supplementing for everybody over the age of 50. And there's been some really interesting studies coming out recently. When we looked at studies on vitamin B12 status in populations, it used to be that vegetarians and vegans would be more likely to be deficient. But the new data shows us that health-conscious plant-based eaters are less likely than omnivores to be B12 deficient because they're supplementing, because they're informed, they've read the science, and they're, you know, they're making conscious choices about the food they're eating. They understand the need for B12 supplementation. So in the 21st century, healthy plant-based eaters are actually less likely to be B12 deficient because they're supplementing. Prescription seven. Are you ready? Yes. (laughs) Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's keep going. Let's do it. Prescription seven was cut out the sweet stuff. At the very least, cut it right down. Our brains love sweet food. We get a little dopamine hit. We get a little energy hit because, you know, primitive humans were in a daily struggle for survival. Anything they could eat was basically food, animal, vegetable, or mineral. They wanted to survive long enough to procreate, ensure the survival of their genes, their family, their tribe. Like a long life and a long retirement was never on the cards. And those primitive brains love fat and oil and sugar. So when we consume sugar, it you know, gives us this little pickup. And there isn't any fruit that is as sweet as a you know, sugar-coated donut. National guidelines say that we should keep purified sugar consumption to less than 5% of our total energy. And if you want to meet that recommendation, then adding things like maple syrup or other artificial sweeteners should really be kept to a minimum. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have them, but they should be just an occasional treat. You shouldn't be ladling this stuff over your pancakes. But luckily for us, the natural sugars in fruits and vegetables don't fall into the same harmful group as these refined sugars. So what I'm talking about is things like sugary drinks, sweets, pastries, and you know the donuts and all these sorts of things. So keep those for a rare treat. If you're using sweeteners like maple syrup, just use them sparingly, not something that you depend on for your calories. Love it. Prescription number eight. And this one is really important. And when I say this to my patients... They, they get this look of confusion and then they go, ah, Dr. Desmond's right, actually. Yeah, I never thought of that before. Prescription number eight is, is that milk is for babies. Remember that milk is for babies. So milk, cheese, and yogurt have been promoted for decades as good sources of calcium and promoted as being beneficial and even necessary for human health. Now. It is true that human breast milk is the perfect food for a baby, and cow's milk is the perfect food for a calf. But for human adults, the benefits of regular milk consumption are just not clear. In fact, it may well be the opposite. So earlier this year, 
the New England Journal of Medicine published a really nice review simply titled Milk and Health. And it just, I would highly recommend Google searching Milk and Health by Walter Willett, New England Journal of Medicine 2020, and reading the paper. It's a very accessible, very easy scientific paper to read because the conclusions, having reviewed the evidence, are that the health claims often used by the dairy industry about bone health, etc., just don't stand up to scrutiny. I often say to people that saying that milk builds better bones is like saying Guinness is good for you. <laughs> it's great advertising. It's a great hook. But when you dig into the science, it's just not true. In fact, milk consumption in adolescent boys is, like, it is associated with an increased risk of fracture later in life. The countries that consume the most milk in the world also have the highest risk of osteoporotic fracture. And what that data tells us is that there are many countries out there where there's very little milk consumed, but they don't have an epidemic of, of osteoporosis or fractures. And why is that? Well, there's two reasons. Number one, calcium is important for bone health, but you can get it from so many other places. So whole grains and leafy greens and beans are great sources of calcium, which is even more bioavailable than the calcium that's found in cow's milk. The cow, after all, got that calcium by eating plants in the first place. So bypass the cow and go straight to the plants. And of course, the second thing that has to be said is that bone health isn't just about calcium. It's about healthy protein, which we already spoke about. It's about phosphate and magnesium and potassium. These are things that you will also get wrapped up in the same package if you're getting your calcium from plants. And bone health is also about vitamin D, which we'll talk about in a moment. And it's also about getting weight-bearing exercise. So this whole myth that calcium equals healthy bones and calcium equals milk, we just need to push back against that because there's so many more components to bone health. And milk, it shouldn't surprise anybody that milk that comes from cows isn't necessary for human bone health or human health in general. So I love saying that to my patients at clinic, actually, you know, you know, remember milk is for babies because they go, oh yeah, milk is for babies. You know, it, it's, it's undeniable, right? Absolutely. And most commercial dairy is pumped with antibiotics and so many toxic chemicals that they're just going straight into your body. So please, please, please do not buy commercial dairy from factory cows. It's just one of the most detrimental things to your health. You're right. And when we look at the, at the data of health outcomes and milk consumption, particularly full fat milk, it's very evident that consuming dairy, um, dairy milk and dairy fat in particular is a major driver of cardiovascular disease, which is our number one killer. So that needs to be avoided and has also been shown to increase the risk of prostate cancer in males and potentially ovarian and or breast cancer in females. So there's like four or five really good reasons to enjoy a plant-based milk rather than an animal's milk or, a, or milk that was des originally destined for a young calf rather than an adult human being. So prescription number nine. We mentioned just a moment ago, don't forget your sunshine vitamin. So vitamin D, super important to human health, really important for bone health, but also really important for hormonal health. 
and endocrine health. So vitamin D deficiency has been linked to increased risk of bone fractures, dementia, poor dental health, reduced muscle strength, falls in the elderly, worse outcomes in inflammatory bowel disease. Basically, if you've got low vitamin D levels, it puts you at risk of lots of different medical problems. So where do we get vitamin D from? Well, our bodies actually synthesize it, but they only synthesize it if we're exposed to lots of bright sunshine. Now, you're very lucky you're in the sunshine state, so, so you're, you're, you're doing okay there. But I live in Southwest England. It's dark now because it's the nighttime. I think it's been this dark all day, basically, Melissa. So 40 minutes of bright sunshine per day for people with darker skin, 20 minutes of bright sunshine a day for people with lighter skin. If you can guarantee that sun exposure, 365 year round, then your body will make enough of vitamin D. But humans no longer live in equatorial regions predominantly. We live at different latitudes where we just don't get that sunshine. Even if we do have that sunshine, we're in our cars, we're in our offices, so we just don't get sunshine. So this isn't a vegan issue or a plant-based issue. This is a 21st century issue. So in the UK, the Scientific Advisory Committee on Nutrition recommends that everybody should take a vitamin D supplement. Um, So it'll be 400 to 800 units per day, and that we should take those during the winter months or year round if we're not able to get outdoors and get that sunshine. So I love spending time outdoors. I live here in the southwest of England. We've got great parks and open areas and Dartmoor. It's just beautiful. I live near the beach, but I still take a vitamin D supplement year round because on any given year, I spend like most of my weeks at the hospital or driving to the hospital. So please remember your sunshine vitamin, particularly during the winter months. And the final prescription that we give in the book, in the Plant-Based Diet Revolution, is just get some help if you need it. We outline in the book the many, many advantages to eating a plant-based diet. We've talked about lots of them, right? Lower risk of multiple diseases, a longer and healthier life. However, there isn't any dietary choice or food or pill that is going to make you disease-proof. So we can reduce the risk of chronic illnesses. And I've seen that science played out in my clinic on numerous occasions. But if you have a health problem and you've got a new symptom and you're not sure if it's right or not, or you know, if you, if you are worried about something, go and see your family doctor. Go and talk to your practice nurse. Because even if they know nothing about food and nutrition, if they have never heard of a plant-based diet, they'll still know plenty about doing those simple checks and examining and maybe feeling your tummy and do some basic blood tests just to make sure that you don't have a serious health problem. So it's always really sensible to see your GP or your practice nurse and get those things checked out. And with most medical conditions, early detection is really, really important. I love these 10 prescriptions. They're all incredibly easy to implement into your life today. You can start to do these things today. So I love them and I'm really inspired to stay on this path and I've felt so incredible already. And I don't want anyone listening to feel like eating like this is hard. It is 100% not hard. It truly isn't. It's actually easier and takes a lot less time than cooking another way or eating another way. So I know for me, it's been so much 
easier. And it's brought so much joy to my life to discover new things and new recipes and new plants and become curious and become a detective when you go to the farmer's markets and ask questions and have fun with it because you've got to fall in love with food and you've got to fall in love with cooking because it's one thing that you're going to have to do for the rest of your life. So many people say, I don't cook. And I'm like, well, you better start to learn because you are going to have to do it for the rest of your life. And the more you fall in love with it, the more you embrace it, the better. My husband is an incredible cook for those that follow me on Instagram stories. You'll know his food is amazing. He cooks very elaborate things. He goes above and beyond. I love cooking too, but I cook a little bit more simpler things where he's getting all the herbs and spices and makes the curry pastes from scratch and he loves it. It's a meditation for him. You don't have to do that, but you do have to fall in love with food and fall in love with cooking because this is your health. This is your temple. You only get one of them in this lifetime. And we've got to take care of it. We've got to look after it and treat it like the temple that it is because you can't trade it in and take it back. You know, when you're 60 or you're 70, you can't be like, oh, I want a new one. Thank you. I'd like a new one. You can't do that. So we need to look after it and really nourish it and have fun with the whole food thing. It's the best investment you'll ever make, right? I mean, a lot of people who listen to your podcast are already going to be very health conscious. And believe me, if you are health conscious, then moving to a more or predominantly or even completely plant-based diet is just such a good investment in your time, your money, and your effort. You know, a lot of the time when I speak to people about the benefits of a healthy diet and lifestyle, and I say, look, longevity, a longer and happier life. And they say, well, yeah, but you know, it's those last few years, those, you know, those difficult years, those nursing home years, you know, I don't want to be 102 and all, but that's not how it plays out, of course. I mean, there was a lovely study published in the UK earlier this year, which looked at the impact of a healthy diet and lifestyle. And these healthy habits, so exercising regularly, maintaining a healthy body weight, not smoking, keeping your alcohol consumption low, and eating a healthy plant-powered diet, add healthy years to your life. So for the average female, 10 and a half extra years of healthy quality life. For the average adult, for the average male, an extra 8.6 years of healthy, active life. Like I want those nine years or 10 years. Those are the difference between, you know, bringing your kids, your grandkids to the first day of high school and seeing them finish university. So those are really important and productive years. And yeah, they're they're there. They're there for the taking. So what have you got to lose? Exactly. You know, we say that to our parents. We're like, you know, make these shifts now. And your later years, you can be running around with the grandkids still, you know, running around and healthy and be able to sit on the floor and play with them and get up off the floor and go running around. It's just, that's what I visualize being 120, still running around, still doing yoga, still surfing, all of those things. Absolutely. And when you look at the healthiest populations in the world, and when you look at the blue zones, you have the Seventh-day Adventists and you look at, we talked earlier about Okinawa. So 
we're talking about people having longer and healthier and happier lives. Why are their lives longer and healthier and happier? It's because they're healthier in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and beyond. So they're healthy throughout their life. So, you know, we shouldn't ever look at this as a short-term project. In the title of the book, we use the phrase plant-based diet revolution. And people think of diet, diet refers to, and this is on the opening page of the book from the English dictionary, diet, the food that an animal or person eats each day. A diet has been rebranded as a kind of a short-term thing that you do. I'm on a diet. I'm going on holidays. I'm going to go on a diet. It's coming up to Christmas. I'm going to go on a diet. But diet isn't something we do short term. It's the food that we choose to eat every day. And as I said at the very top of this interview, it's one of the most important determinants of our health and longevity. So, so I would like people to kind of try and reframe that word diet and maybe stop thinking about short termism and stop thinking about protein and carbs and, and fats and just to start thinking more about whole plant-based foods. And when you put them together in a tasty way, guess what? You're going to get healthier, but also you're going to be getting more fiber, more vitamin A, C, E, your B vitamins, your folate, your potassium, your magnesium. You're going to be getting the phytonutrients and antioxidants, that vitamin C and beta carotene and flavonoids, and all these things that you read about in the newspaper every now and then, you know, oh, they've just found out that the reservatrol in red wine is a potent antioxidant, so drink red wine. You don't need to drink red wine or buy reservatrol tablets to get those benefits. What you need to do is just eat whole plants. Absolutely. Now, let's pretend that you have a magic wand and you could put one book in the school curriculum of every single high school around the world. Now, besides your book, let's pretend that's already in the curriculum. What is one other book you would choose? That's a great question. It wouldn't be anything to do with food, actually. It would be The Shortness of Life by Seneca. So Seneca, Stoic philosopher, 50 BC the shortness of life. Of course, the secret of the shortness of life is that life isn't short. Seneca's lesson is that life is long enough if you use it well. And it's really the granddaddy of every self-help book you've ever read. So Seneca, the shortness of life, if you haven't read it, read it now. Everybody should read it. The lessons in there have never been more relevant. The lessons that Seneca was teaching over two centuries ago, are completely relevant in this social media-driven world that we live in. He still has a lot of wisdom to to pass on. And I wish everybody would just read that book. Mm, I'll link to it in the show notes so everyone can check it out. Okay. I love hearing about people's morning routines and how they prime themselves for a successful day. So can you tell us about your morning routine, your rituals, what you eat, all of your little healthy habits that you do each morning? And I know every day is not the same, but kind of talk us through a typical day for you. Yeah. Every day is different. We've got three young kids, so they will determine our morning routine. So they're very much so, but three days, so four days a week, I will exercise in the morning. So I go to CrossFit on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Right now I'm doing that on Zoom from my living room, 
But yeah, so I'll be there before I eat. And also on Sunday, I go for a mega workout with a bunch of friends. And so it's um, a quick cup of coffee first and then a workout and then breakfast. I always bring my own food. So I have breakfast ready from the night before when I'm going to work, when I go to the gym in the morning. So I'll have like overnight oats or simple whole grain bread or a different kind of porridge. So certainly during the weekdays, breakfast is going to be really simple and there's going to be coffee involved. Insofar as a morning routine, at the moment, my morning routine just boils down to that, is getting out of bed, getting out the door, getting to the gym, having my coffee, having my breakfast, which is always a really healthy breakfast, and then getting stuck into my day's work at the hospital. So my morning routine is pretty simple, actually, but it's very predictable. Awesome. Thank you for sharing. I have three rapid fire questions for you now. Are you ready? Oh yeah, I'm terrible at rapid fire, as you might have noticed already. <laughs> go. <laughs> what is one thing, if you had to pick just one thing that we could do today to improve our health? Educate yourself. It's just to educate yourself. You know, education is so important. There is so, it's, we're overwhelmed with information now. We are just absolutely overwhelmed. So seek out an expert or a trusted resource and ask them for the resources that they recommend. Because, you know, in the book, I've put in a lot of resources. And at the end of the book, I have like a list of trusted resources that I would recommend. So learn more. I mean, if we're talking about the benefits of diet, have a look at Doctors for Nutrition if you're in Australia. PCRN, if you're in the United States, Plant-Based Doctors Ireland, if you're in Ireland, have a look at Plant-Based Health Professionals UK, if you're in the UK. So seek out these websites and these organizations. I've got friends and contacts in all of those organizations in this global network of doctors who are passionate about educating people on the benefits of a whole food plant-based diet. And I can tell you, there is no hidden agenda there is, no, you know, there is no other motivation than trying to improve the health of the public and try to help people to make healthier food choices. So educate yourself. Read more. Dr. Michael Greger's uh, classic book, How Not to Die, is wonderful because every single statement in the book gives the scientific reference. So that's an approach I've taken in my book as well. Every single health claim, you'll have noticed, Melissa, gives you the scientific reference. So if you don't believe me, you can go and read the the, the research yourself and form your own opinion. So please educate yourself. That would be my number, just absolutely number one tip. And you know, knowledge is power. 100% agree. I've had Michael Greger on the podcast twice. So I'll link to his episodes in the show notes. He's incredible. And his books are incredible as well. You know, I've I've been lucky enough to be Michael's warm-up act at a few conferences and spend some time with him. And yeah, he is just the nicest. And just, you know, I mentioned earlier that, you know, gladly I'm part of this global network of doctors now. And there is no people, you know, sometimes people come on my social media. They say, oh, you're, you know, a propagandist or you're part of this vegan conspiracy or something. There is no conspiracy. We're just doctors and health professionals who've looked for answers, examined the medical evidence. And we're, we're, this genuinely comes from a good place. 
And that is so true. It's true of Dr. Neil Bernard, Dr. Clapper, Brenda Davis. It's true for Dr. Shreen Kazan, who set up our organization here in the UK. And it's very true for Dr. Gregor. He's such a generous and positive guy. So yeah, Michael's wonderful. So you're, you're lucky to have had him on the podcast. What a great guy. Such a nice guy to spend time with. Definitely. Okay. What is one thing that we can do for more wealth in our life? So more abundance in all areas of our life. I think spending more time with our valued friends. That is, I mean, has that ever been more evident than during lockdown? So spending more time with the people we value. And if we are trying to improve our health and improve our dietary choices and become one of those people who has a longer and healthier life, what can be really useful is to build that community around you. So seek out your healthiest friends. So that's another, we have another bunch of tips in the book on how to beat the obesogenic environment. And that's one of the tips. Seek out the people that you would like to be more like and try and spend some time with them because you will pick up their habits. And if they like eating a whole food plant-based diet and they consider that normal, soon you'll consider that normal. And if they consider getting out for an early morning hike at the weekend normal, soon you'll consider that normal. So I think seek, spending more time, more, more time with the people that we love and the people that we value, but also seeking out friendships with, with people who we would like to be more like. So surround yourself by people who seem to have figured a few things out. Definitely. You become the average of the five most prominent people in your life. So that's something to think about. I love that tip. And finally, for our rapid fire, what is one of the most important things that we can do for more love in our life? I think just give more love. You know, my little boy has this, my youngest is four and a half, our youngest is four and a half. And he just has this little thing next to his bed and it says, be someone's sunshine. And that's such a lovely thought, isn't it? So if you're having a bad day and you haven't met someone kind or friendly or nice that day, then be that person. Just just give more love, give more brightness, give more generosity, and it'll come, it'll come right back to you. I love that. So beautiful. Is there anything else that you want to share? Any last parting words of wisdom or anything that you wanted to talk about that we didn't get to cover? You know, there's one thing, Melissa, and I'll keep this brief because I know, I know you want to, to land the plane, but we in 2020 have just come through an, a horrendous event and we're still going through it. We are still going through the coronavirus pandemic and we could talk about this for a long time, but to be brief, we know that individuals hospitalized with COVID-19 if they have high cholesterol or high blood pressure or heart disease, they're more likely to do badly, more likely to die, sadly. The same diseases that are driven by our food choices in the 21st century, which we knew took years off our lives anyway, are now taking years off our lives much more quickly because this particular infection takes hold far more readily if you have one of those underlying conditions. This coronavirus came from animals. It is a zoonotic disease. It came from a meat market. Earlier this year, the UN issued a report giving governments the world over guidelines and a blueprint for what can we do 
to reduce the chances of the next pandemic, the next uh, zoonotic pandemic to jump from animals to humans. And in their report, they highlighted something we've known for years, the dietary habits, the standard Western diet, which has taken over the world, which demands high amounts of animal products. If we're going to feed the world like that, we are going to have to continue to slaughter 40 to 60 billion animals per year. They're going to have to be raised in unhygienic conditions. And those are the conditions that are breeding the next pandemic. And the number one human behavior, the number one thing that we can do, according to the United Nations, to reduce the risk of another zoonotic pandemic is to reduce our consumption of animal protein, to eat less meat. So whether you're worried about your personal health, preventing the next pandemic, whether you're, you would like to reduce your personal carbon footprint, your personal water consumption or the impact you have on the earth. The plant, the whole food plant-based diet really ticks all the right boxes. So choose which one of those things you care about. I love that. And, and just make the change and just make the change. And earlier this year, um, during the spring, I had to give up my special practice and I worked for six weeks on one of our local coronavirus wards. So I saw up close and personal exactly the toll that this condition, this new infection has on individuals. And I definitely don't want to live through another zoonotic pandemic. Mm, No, 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 definitely not. Alan, this has been amazing. So informative. I could talk to you for hours, but thank you so much. You are helping so many people. You are serving so many people. So how can I and the listeners give back to you today? How can we serve you? Well, share this podcast with someone. I think we, we covered a lot of really important issues for human health. And so, yeah, I think I think we did a good job, Liz. I think we covered it. So please share this podcast with someone. We, we covered a lot. We highlighted a lot of really good resources. If you enjoyed, you know, what I had to say, just come and follow me on Instagram at Dr. Alan Desmond. That's my really my only social media presence. So if you've enjoyed hearing me speak today, and would like to hear more, and if you'd like to see photographs of my food, seek me out on Instagram, or if you have any questions arising from what we discussed today, just just get on, get on Instagram, send me a message, and I'll try and get back to you. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for all the work that you do, the wisdom that you've shared, and for being a trailblazer and a light in this health world. So thank you so much. Thanks, Melissa. It's been an absolute pleasure. How awesome was that conversation? I got so much out of it. I loved his 10 prescriptions. And I really want to encourage you to try each and every one of them. They're so easy to implement into your life and very, very practical. And if you got a lot out of today's episode, please subscribe and leave me a review in iTunes or on your podcast app, because that means that we can inspire and educate even more people together. And it also means that you could potentially be the review of the week for next week, which is awesome. And speaking of review of the week, I want to read this week's review and it comes from Lorraine and it's a five-star review titled Perfect for a Pick-Me-Up. And she says, Melissa is the most kind and generous woman. She never disappoints with any of her podcasts. I was introduced to her podcast about a year ago and I've not regretted it. Thank you for being so real, raw and honest. The actionable tips I've implemented into my life have helped me create a better version of myself. You won't regret pressing play. 
Lorraine, thank you so much for that review. I'm so grateful. And as a little thank you, I want to give you one of my top four favorite products, which is some goodies from Organifi. So just send me an email to hello at melissaambrosini.com with your postal address and we'll get that sent out to you. And don't forget to come and follow me on Instagram at Melissa Ambrosini and tell me your top key takeaways from this episode. I absolutely love reading what you get from each episode. So please come and share them with me. And for everything that we mention in today's show, you can check out in the show notes. And that's over at melissaambrosini.com forward slash 374. And before I go, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here for wanting to be the best, the healthiest, and the happiest version of yourself, and for showing up today for you. You rock. Now, if there's someone in your life that you can think of that would really benefit from this episode, please share it with them right now. You can take a screenshot, share it on your social media, email it to them, text it to them, do whatever you've got to do to get this in their ears. And until next time, Don't forget that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word.